Thank you, Dave. <clears throat> this is the first time I've had an opportunity, obviously, to welcome all of you to school and uh, let you know it's a wonderful joy to have you back. Uh, I look forward to this first chapel that I have an opportunity to share with you more than you know. When you leave, uh, when you leave a big hole in my heart, when you come back, it fills up again, and uh, it's a special joy to be with you today. Uh, I, I would just say one brief word about my own time this summer, uh, the busiest summer I think in my life, certainly from an international standpoint, we happen to be basically all over the, the world ministering the Word of God. The thing that I came back with this summer was the tremendous sense of privilege that we have to be here. I, uh, I experienced some very difficult situations where I was. I was in Northern Ireland where Christians have lived for 23 years under the threat of terrorism. Pastors uh, change their cars about every six months or a year because they're afraid the IRA will blow it up. If they find out what car they drive, they go to their church a different route every day so that they can't be tracked. Uh, they live in a frightening situation. One of my very dear friends, Frank Retief, in South Africa, his congregation gathered about a month ago on a Sunday night. Three terrorists came in the door, threw hand grenades, and massacred 12 of his people and maimed 51 more. That was in the very church where I preached and had the greatest meetings I had in South Africa. And I received a letter from Frank yesterday, and he was telling me what, what it was like to come back to your church after that kind of thing and have to bury whole families and, and a tremendous masses of people in the hospital and all the family that go with them and all of the political issues and how in all of it they had seen the hand of God. I saw something of the persecution of evangelical Christians even in the land of Israel. I saw the small, meager kind of church that exists in Greece and almost a non-existent church in the land of Turkey. We are so privileged. You, you can only guess, I think, without getting inside the heart and mind of other people. We're so privileged to be here. With all that may be wrong with the United States of America, with all that we may not like about the political agenda of the current administration, this is a place where God has given us great privilege. And with that great privilege comes immense responsibility. In a few weeks, I'll be going back to uh, Romania and then up into uh, the Ukraine and then up into Russia. And uh, I'll find there, as we always do when we go, the chaos and the confusion and the disorder, the sense of a basic misunderstanding of what true religion is all about, trying to sort out all the issues that are flooding into those nations. Everywhere I go, I meet young people who wish they could be here. I talked to young people in all those places who said we would give anything to be a part of the Master's College. That's not possible. Mark Tadlock told me this morning we have 200 inquiries, I think he said a month, from foreign students who want to be here, but don't have the capability or the wherewithal to come from their part of the world to share here. And so we have to go to them in many cases, but we, in the process of being here, have to be grateful to God for the privilege that we have. And I hope as you come back this year, your heart is filled with thanks and gratitude that the Lord has given you this privilege to, to be a part of what God is doing in this wonderful place. 
This morning and Friday, I want to share with you some some thoughts about the theme of spiritual growth. And uh, I want to just kind of introduce it by reminding you of a few scriptures, all right? In 1 Peter 3, 18, it says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 2, it says, As babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul says we should be moving from one level of glory to the next, always more and more like Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, John says there are three levels of spiritual growth. There is a spiritual baby, there is a spiritual young man, and there is a spiritual father. You start out as a baby, that is, you know who God is, you know who Christ is, you don't know much more. You become a young man, John says, that's someone who knows doctrine. You know the facts of the scripture, that's a spiritual young man. You're strong in the word, and in in that sense, you've overcome the errors and lies of Satan himself. But you want to come all the way to being a spiritual father, and a spiritual father is someone who has a deep and abiding knowledge of God that has come from years of experiencing the, the very power and presence of God in his life. So we're all in a process, I trust, while we're here, of academics. We're in a process of maturation socially and physically, and we're in a process of meeting life friends and companions. And a lot of things are going on as our our priorities change and as we come to grips with the realities of life and start to think seriously about our field and our career and our future. But something that needs to be going on while you're here is this area of spiritual growth. And, of course, that's my passion. And I think that's the passion of all of us who are responsible in leadership here. What we mean about spiritual growth is simply becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Paul summed it up in Philippians 3 when he said, I press toward the mark. And what is the mark? Christ's likeness. The mark is like a finish line. You know how they put a, a line on the ground across the lanes and a track. They may put a tape across a chest uh, level, but there's always a line there to mark the finish line. Well, that's what he's talking about. I, I press, I run for the mark, for the finish line, for the tape. And what is it? It is to be like Jesus Christ. That is the pursuit of every Christian's life. We want to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that's why you were saved. You were elected, you were called, says Paul, you were justified in order to be conformed to the image of God's Son. The very reason that we have become saved, the reason God put this whole plan in motion in eternity past when he elected us, the reason he called us and justified us was to start a process to make us like Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says someday we will be like him when we see him as he is. In the meantime, we press toward that mark. Spiritual maturity then is not mystical. It's, it's not something that's ethereal or spacey. It's not something that is not measurable. It is clearly becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, which means we act more like he acted, we talk more like he talked, and we think more like he thought. Now, let me... Let me say a few more things about this general subject before we look at what is really the key to this. Spiritual growth has nothing to do with your position in Christ. Okay, I'm going to give you just a few thoughts like that. Spiritual growth has nothing to do with your position in Christ. In other words, when you became a believer, you're in Christ. 
You're covered with his righteousness. You have been made complete in him, Colossians 2.10 says. You have uh, all things pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. He is now uh, working through you all things for good, Romans 8 says. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are gone, new things have come. So spiritual growth has nothing to do with your position in Christ. You're saved, you're eternally saved, you're in Christ, you're covered by his righteousness. That's a set, fixed issue. Secondly, spiritual growth has nothing to do with God's love for you. His love for you is unconditional. If he loved you when you weren't saved, he can certainly love you when you are. If he loved you when you were an enemy, he can love you now that you're a friend. If he loved you when you were an alien, he can love you now that you're a child. So the issue of love is never an issue. God loves you, and He loves you supremely, and He loves you perfectly, and follow this thought, He loves you as much as He loves Jesus Christ because He sees you covered in the righteousness of Christ, and you are to Him as Christ is to Him. You are part of the redeemed humanity conformed to the image of Christ. It is not a question of salvation then. It is not a question of love. God isn't going to like you better or love you more if you move along the path of maturity. He loves you perfectly. He can't improve on that. Thirdly, spiritual growth has no relationship to time. No fixed relationship to time. And that is to say, it is not measured by the calendar necessarily. Now, it should be, but it most often isn't. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, For the time, you ought to be mature. But I have to speak to you as what? As babes. In other words, given the time that you have been converted, you ought to have reached a level of maturity, but you haven't. So just time in and of itself does not guarantee spiritual maturity. I can promise you as a pastor that I've seen a lot of folks who have been Christians for 30 and 40 years who have moved very, very few steps beyond the basic level of being a spiritual baby. On the other hand, I have met young people right here in this place who have been Christians for a very brief time and have moved miles from that spiritual infancy and are well on their way to being spiritual fathers at the highest level of spiritual development. It is not an issue of time. In Hebrews 5, uh, the writer says, for the time you ought to be teachers. Enough time has passed for you to be teaching this, and I have to teach you again the basics. So the fact that you've been a Christian, like some people say, have you been a Christian all your life? And they'll say yes, even though they're not dead yet. But if you've been a Christian since, you know, early childhood, and if you've been a Christian for many, many years, that doesn't guarantee anything about your spiritual growth. Let me give you a fourth principle, keeping in mind this aspect of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not simply a matter of knowledge. It is not simply a matter of knowledge. And again, back to Hebrews 5, for the time you ought to be teachers, you have enough accumulated information to have moved to perfection, he says, but you haven't. And I have to go back to the basics. The fact that you have gathered knowledge, the fact that uh, I hate to confess this, but it's absolutely true, that you might be a senior at the master's college doesn't really say anything about your spiritual maturity. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 8, 1, 
Knowledge does what? It puffs up. It makes arrogant. It can either make you humble and mature, or it can make you arrogant. Let me tell you something about knowledge. You learn truth, you learn the knowledge that is coming to you from the Word of God, and you apply it, and it translates immediately into spiritual growth. Don't apply it, and it'll translate immediately into pride. Accumulated information that makes you proud. Furthermore, when you, when you learn biblical truth and divine truth, and you don't apply it in your life, you are training yourself not to apply the Word of God, which is training yourself into indifference. Actually, it'd be better if you didn't hear it, because you wouldn't become callous to its implications. Spiritual growth, then, has nothing to do with your position in Christ that is fixed. It has nothing to do with God's love for you that is perfect. It has no direct relationship to time, and it has no direct relationship that is in any way limited to knowledge. Knowledge is part of it, but just accumulating information isn't the same as growing spiritually. It demands the application of that. Let me give you another thought. Spiritual growth is not simply an issue of activity. It is not an issue of activity. It isn't a question of how busy you have been in your church or how busy you have been in the college and ministry or how busy you are in a local church around here or how faithfully you attend uh, your classes and chapels and the worship on Sunday and Bible studies and whatever else. It's not a, a matter of whether or not you have some ministry that you engage in or some summer mission activity. It is not a question of busyness. Busyness doesn't indicate anything. Necessarily, there are lots of people very busy in religious causes, and there have been such even since the time of Jesus. You remember the Jews were wearing themselves out with their worthless efforts. There are lots of busy people who have not experienced spiritual growth. It is not related to activity. And then one last thought. Spiritual growth is not measured by earthly prosperity. You can't look at someone who seems to have everything and assume that that is the blessing of God because of spiritual growth. The fact of the matter might be that the person who has absolutely nothing and is constantly on his knees praying and seemingly having the Lord answer no may be in fact the most spiritually mature of all because it isn't correlated with life and its, its basic possessions or its blessings. I think for years people have assumed that if your life is filled up with all kinds of good things and if you seem to have met the right person in life and have strong friendships or a strong marriage or a prosperous business or whatever that might be, that that is somehow evidence that God has given special blessing to you because of your spiritual maturity and that is not the case. In fact, uh, Jesus abundantly over and over again made it clear to the disciples with a plethora of teaching that prosperity in this life is never guaranteed no matter how blessed an individual is. So, spiritual growth then is not connected to these kinds of issues. Spiritual growth is simply and only becoming more and more like Jesus Christ.
It is not mystical. It is not sentimental. It is not um, devotional. It is not emotional. It is not psychological. It is not ecstatic. It is not created by a formula. It doesn't happen because you had some uh, zap at some point when you went away to a conference or you sat in a revival or some chapel speaker really got between your ears and even down into your heart and, and you went away feeling conviction. None of that necessarily equates with spiritual growth. It may have a part in it, but that is not the stuff of which spiritual growth is made. Spiritual growth is a steady process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, and that's just kind of by way of introduction, I think the psalmist had it clearly understood in Psalm 16. You might want to look at it for a moment. In Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9, And I go back to this from the time that I was a college student. This verse has stuck in my mind. Verse 8 of Psalm 16. Just the first line really is the heart of it. I have set the Lord continually before me. And you need to underline that, and that's why I had you turn to it. That is the focus of life for one who grows spiritually. I have set the Lord continually before me. He is my goal. He is my model. He is my focus. He is my concentration. His glory, His person consumes me. Everything I do, everything I am, everything I think is responding to the fact that I have set the Lord continually before me. That's what produces the proper perspective. Now, if I set the Lord before me and He and His likeness becomes the controlling issue of my life, what characteristics am I going to pursue? Uh, What I want to do today for the time that we have left, a few minutes and then on Friday, is kind of take you through some very basic things with regard to what it is that I pursue in pursuing Christ-likeness so that we can get very specific. It's easy to, to sort of just talk in generalities, but I want to really narrow this down for you. If I am going to be like Jesus Christ. What does that involve? And probably, uh, you know, we'll come up with six, seven, eight. We'll just go as long as we can, see how much time we have. Let me give you the first one. And this is obvious, okay? The first thing that I'm going to have to do in my life, if I'm going to be like Christ, is to aim at that. And that means, put it this way, focus on glorifying Him. Focus on glorifying Him. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 10.31? It says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the what? To the glory of God. Doesn't matter what you do, whether eating or drinking. We're talking here about the cafeteria. We're talking here about jack-in-the-box, whatever. We're talking about the mundane, routine, nondescript trivialities of life which have to be caught up in this consuming thing about glorifying God. Now, this is a massive subject in the Bible. 
But you remember what Jesus said. Jesus said that he had come into the world basically to do one thing. One thing. He says this. I do not seek my glory. But rather, he says in John 17, Father, I have glorified you in the world. That was his consuming desire. What did it mean to glorify God? To please God. To honor God. Now, let me take you back in redemptive history a little bit and see if I can't paint a scenario for you. Go back into eternity past, all right? And you've got the Father and the Son and then the Holy Spirit. At some point in eternity past, the Father wants to express His love to the Son. Because He perfectly loves the Son, the second member of the Trinity, He wants to express that love. Love must express itself. And so the Father comes up with a plan. And the plan is this. The plan is, I am going to redeem a group of beings who are going to spend forever and ever and ever and ever doing nothing but singing the praises of the Son. That's the Father's plan. That's His intended love gift to the Son. It's an immense thing. We talked briefly about this last year at our Bible conference. And I just want to build on that thought. The Father wants to show His love to the Son, and the way He designs to do that is to create a whole group of beings, not angels this time, but human beings, who will spend eternity doing nothing but glorifying the Son. Just constantly telling Him how wonderful He is. Now, when we want to honor somebody, we send them a card, and for 15 seconds it tells them how wonderful they are. We had an anniversary this last uh, Monday, and we got a lot of nice cards. And people at times like that are very sentimental, and they say very nice things. Yesterday I got a, uh, this morning actually, I got a note from my son who was expressing his love for me. And, and for the moments that I read that and the lingering moments after that, I, in a sense, was being honored by my son. We do that. Sometimes you do it when you give a compliment to somebody, when you express your appreciation to somebody, and that's a fitting and a proper thing to do. We understand that. Well, the Father, in a perfect way, wants to express His unending love in a perfect way to the Son. And He does it by saying, I'm going to redeem a whole humanity, and I'm going to give them to you forever and ever and ever to do nothing but tell you how glorious and how wonderful you are. The Father promises to do that, and He says, all I ask of you is to go into the world... Because you're going to have to redeem them. That's your part. That's what Hebrews 13 calls the eternal covenant. Between the Father and the Son made an eternity past. And so when the Son came into the world, He didn't come into the world to do His own work. He didn't come into the world to fulfill His own will. He came here to, to, to do the redeeming act so that the Father could collect those that he had chosen before the foundation of the world to be given to the Son forever and ever to praise and glorify his name. So Jesus is simply saying, look, I came into the world to do the Father's will. 
In John 6, he said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I won't lose any of them. I came into the world. I'm going to do what the Father said. I'm going to gather the elect, and I'm going to bring them to myself. And then in John 17, he prays and says, Father, I've finished your work. I've done what you've asked me to do. Now bring me to heaven. And then he says, and be sure you follow up on your plan, collecting all your elect, and you bring them there too so they can be there with us. That's the plan. Planned in eternity past. Worked out in time, and you were saved because God chose you before the foundation of the world to make you a love gift to His Son. The reason you were saved was so that someday you could be conformed to His image and spend all eternity praising Him. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, what's everybody in heaven doing? Praising God. Angels are doing it. Redeemed saints are doing it. Everybody's doing it. So Jesus came into the world and said, look, I only live for one thing, and that is the glory of my Father. I'm going to do what my Father asks. By the way, you know what's going to happen in the end? Someday, all of the elect will be gathered, and all of us will be in heaven. And at that point, the Father will say, here's the completed, redeemed humanity, and we will all be given to Christ. And then you know what's going to happen? Christ is going to thank the Father for such a love gift. And then according to 1 Corinthians 15, He's going to turn right around and give it back to the Father. So that God may be all in all. You and I are caught up in this immense plan where the Father is showing His love to the Son, who in turn will show His love back to the Father. And we're just there to praise them both forever and ever and ever and ever. Jesus said, that's the only reason I live. The only reason I came into the world was to glorify the Father. If I'm going to be like Christ, then the only reason I live is to glorify the Father and to glorify the Son, right? That's why I'm here. I'm not here to do my own will. I'm not here to do my own work. I'm not here to concoct my own plan. I am here to do whatever. And I have to aim at glorifying Him. I have to aim my life at that. It doesn't matter whether it's eating or drinking. It doesn't matter how mundane, and that's, those are illustrations of mundane things. Everything I do is to that intention. That means, for example, that I would, uh, I would prefer God's glory over my own. That sounds rather reasonable, but it's a tough one, isn't it, when it comes down to living? That means no matter how high the price, I will do what God wants. I'm that committed to His glory. Back in Exodus chapter 32, God said, now look, you've been worshiping a golden calf and I'm going to punish you. So He said, some of you are going to die. So he, he said to the people, take out your sword. Everybody kill his brother and his friend, his companion. That's a tough command. Kill people in your own family with a sword because you're acting as the agent of the judgment of God. Why? Because God was dishonored. God's name was humiliated and blasphemed in that golden calf. And God said... There must be justice, there must be punishment, and I'm telling you, if you care about my glory more than you care about your love for your own family, then you'll act. And you know what? They strapped on their swords, and they killed their friends, and they killed their family, because the glory of God was greater to them than that. That's tough. That's almost unthinkable. But when you are consumed with the glory of God, you will prefer His glory above all else. 
It will never be an issue to you what people think of you. It will never be an issue to you about your reputation or your esteem or your admiration or how well you come off in the rating system. It will never be an issue to you about what others think. It will only be an issue to you about what God wants and what glorifies Him. And it may be that someday the Lord may come to you like He did to Peter and say to you, you know, this is going to cost you your life. John 21 You remember it was said about Peter, this is the way he will glorify God. What way? By being taken prisoner, being tied down, actually crucified. And he did. He was crucified upside down as a martyr for his Lord. That was the way he glorified God. It it could cost you your life. Isaiah called for the remnant, you remember, of Israel. And he said, glorify God in the fires. In other words, if they burn you to death, glorify God the whole time. So when you aim your life at glorifying God, and you're now beginning to be like Christ. That's how, that's how practical spiritual growth is. I want to be like Christ, then I'm going to aim my life at God's glory. Whatever it is that glorifies God, whatever honors His name, that's what I'm going to do. That means I don't take His name in vain. That dishonors His name. That means that the priority of my life is to worship Him. That means I'm not going to forsake the assembling of myself together But I'm going to be there in the place of worship with God's corporate community, glorifying and honoring and worshiping and adoring God. That means I'm going to be here and sing with all my heart these great hymns that we sang because that glorifies God. I'm going to do whatever glorifies God because that's what Jesus did. And the goal of my life is to be like Christ. That's the path of spiritual growth. And it means I prefer him over everything else, my own career goals, my own wealth, my own reputation, my own life, if need be. Paul says, if I live, I live to the Lord. If I die, I die unto the Lord. So what's the difference? Whether I live or die, I am the Lord's. It also means that I'm content to be outdone by somebody else. In other words, I'm not living in sort of a competitive mentality. Philippians chapter 1, have an interesting illustration of that. The Apostle Paul was in prison in Philippians. He had been, a, he'd been the hero of everybody. I mean, he traveled all over that part of the world, all over Asia Minor, as well as back in the land of Israel. He had preached. He was the great preacher. He was the one that was responsible for planting all the churches. Everybody who was a convert in the Gentile world, he either led to Christ or somebody he led to Christ led them to Christ, with very few exceptions. His ministry was immense. The power of his character, the power of his preaching, the power of his life was very evident, still is to the whole world. Anybody who knows the New Testament knows that. And what had happened was Paul was thrown in jail and some young preachers came along and said, well, the reason he's in jail is because God put him there. He blew it. His life isn't what it ought to be. There's some secret sin in his life. Somewhere something's really rotten. God had to put him on the shelf and we're the new breed and we're coming along and you need to hear us and we've got the message from God And Paul says what they were trying to do in Philippians 1 was add pain to his affliction. It wasn't bad enough that he was in chains. They wanted to inflict their own pain on him. And sometimes we suffer most at the hands of uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't we? But they they were inflicting these lies and innuendos as if he had sinned and as if he had violated God or as if he had grown past his usefulness and God had to put him on the shelf. And Paul says this. If Christ is preached, I will rejoice. Even though they want to add affliction to my bonds, even though they preach Christ some by pretense and some of sincerity, 
Whatever, if Christ is preached, I rejoice. And what he was saying was, what do I care about my reputation? What do I care who gets the human credit? If Christ is preached, I will rejoice. And when you reach that point, what you're saying is, I really don't care who the human instrument is. I don't care who gets the human credit. I want God to be glorified. I want Christ to be exalted at anyone's cost. You might put it this way, let my candle go out. If the son of righteousness can rise with healing in his beams. When you think about spiritual growth and you think about becoming like Christ, you're thinking about living a life that glorifies God. Just in closing, and we'll talk about some more specifics next time, and I'll just give you a little grocery list of of those. Do you remember in Romans 1 when the whole human race is indicted? It says this. They glorified not God. They did not give him the honor that he was due. That is the indictment of all of fallen humanity. Non-believers refuse to glorify God. Believers, by virtue of their transformation, live for the very opposite. And that is to give him Glory. There are only two kinds of people in the world, those who don't and those who do give God glory. Whatever you do, then, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It's a very serious thing not to do that, by the way. This summer we were in Israel in an amphitheater where Herod held a special event one day. And... uh, Stood up and put on all his royal robes and really claimed to be a god. And the people all shouted, it is the voice of a god. It is the voice of a god and not a man. This massive crowd was there as he was gaining all their accolades. And immediately, the Bible says in Acts 12, God struck him. He was eaten by worms and died. Which was a kind of a sad end to Herod Day. And the Bible says, because he gave not God the glory. Jeremiah the prophet said, the day is going to come when God's going to judge all of you who don't glorify him. It's going to cause God to weep, but he's going to have to do it. So the unregenerate world is characterized by not giving glory to God, not honoring God, not respecting God, not worshiping God, not adoring God, not doing his will at any cost, whereas Christians are committed to that as a way of life. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God and you will mirror the commitment of Jesus Christ. I came not to do my will, John 8:50, and then John 17, I came to do your will, Father. My prayer for you is that you will grow, that you will grow in grace and that you will grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will begin to do that as you become more and more like him. And it starts with his glory. Let's pray. Father, we've tried to compact a lot into our time this morning. And I just pray that you will seal these things to our hearts. We're not even, we're not even worthy in the least sense of bearing such a responsibility and privilege as being like Jesus Christ. We who are so sinful, 
so unworthy. There's no rational human reason why we should even be considered to be made like your son. And herein is grace that what is irrational to us is your will. That we be conformed to the image of your son. Someday we will be. That is the prize. But it is for us now also the mark and the goal. Help us then, Lord, to grow spiritually by becoming more and more like Christ, which means day in and day out, pursuing with all our might, in the smallest details of life, even eating and drinking, to the great issues of life, that which honors you. That's what Jesus did, and we long to do the same. And we pray in his dear name. Amen.